This morning I'm talking about the fact that we have been enlisted. We are continuing the battle plan series, and we've had a lot of great messages. We're starting to come to a close on it. But this morning, Pastor Brian has given me the great privilege of sharing with you on the idea of us being enlisted, or another way you can say that is that we've been called. And specifically, I want to speak this morning to our vocations, what you do with your hands, your head, and your heart, nine to five, or whatever your hours and your schedule looks like. And it's a bit of a daunting task, and I have a few prefaces for you. The first preface is that I think pastors are the least qualified people to talk about vocation and calling. Not because we don't love Jesus and have theological knowledge and, and have searched the scriptures in many ways more than you have, but simply because all we know is this specific calling. We do not know in many ways what it's like to be in the workplace or the marketplace. And, and there are many pastors who have been bivocational or changed their callings later and they're qualified. But for me, outside of Dairy Queen, when I was 17 years old, I've always worked in ministry. And Dairy Queen was great and that is a holy place. But it's not the same. It's not the same. The second preface that I have for you is that I hope to educate and teach more than preach. Um, I do think that there will be a great response to this message, but my aim is solely to inform and educate on how to navigate with your calling and your vocation in your workplace or your future workplace. And, and so for you, Caitlin, and our other seniors, I hope that this frames the way you view your work. And, and we'll unpack a few um, maybe harmful ideas in the workplace and then replace them with some um, beneficial, I, I believe, biblical ideas in the workplace. Uh, the third preface that I have for you is that I am sorry for the lofty, unrealistic, over-romanticized teachings you have probably heard from a church at some point in time on vocation and calling. Here's what I mean by that. Caitlin, you are going to change the world. You can do anything you put your mind to. I firmly believe that. You're going to have an impact not just on the sphere of influence in your own life, but I believe it will go beyond um, anything you could ever dream or imagine. You can do anything you put your mind to. Now, please plug your ears. Caitlin will never be an NFL football player. <laughs> you can unplug your ears. Do you hear what I'm saying? We tell our kids and students, you're going to be a world changer. You can do anything you put your mind to. And I believe that. That's true. I am um, unashamedly, like, blindly optimistic on 99% of things in this world. And sometimes that doesn't go well, and you can ask my wife about that. But... Um, there are things that we say to people on their vocations that just harm them later. And, and here's what I mean by that. There, we have this gap where we have these lofty dreams. And, and here's, a, here's a classic line. Do what you love or do what you would do for free and do it so well that someone would gladly pay you to do it. Well, I love playing basketball. Nobody's ever going to pay me to play basketball. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or... Or, um, oh, this one's sensitive for a lot of students and parents in the room. Art. <laughs> My passion is art. Your paycheck will probably not come from art. There are a few exceptions to that, but how many of us have art degrees? Oh, please don't be mad at me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though? So we give, we give our young people these lofty, inspirational, uh, meaningful, like, great advice, and then 94% of them can't live up to it, and then there's just this, like, oh, I'm a disappointment. You are not a disappointment if you're not in the NBA, MLB, NHL, or 
Picasso. Like, you are not a disappointment. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is how your work has intrinsic, inherent value, and I'm kind of jumping the gun on that, but, but that is what I want to talk to you about and how that works, how it plays itself out, and um, we'll unpack a few more harmful ideas. But the first thing I think we need to do is um, talk about how to hear from God. So the first point I have for you this morning on our conversation on vocation and calling is we have to learn to hear from God well. And the well there at the end of that is very important. We have to learn to hear from God well. Let me go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. This is kind of what I'm aiming at this morning. Ecclesiastes 3 says this, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. Say that last part again, and find satisfaction in all their toil. The word all there is key because we toil in many ways. Toil is kind of a uh, old-timey biblical word for labor or work. Um, this is the gift of God. And a, a way to summarize this is um, sanctity of work. That's a theological term, that there's something inherently sacred about our work. Another way to say that is um, not just sanctity of work, but human flourishing. If you think about how much time you spend at work throughout your adult life, that is a large sum of our time. And what we can't do is we can't say, God doesn't care about that. Let me just wrap that up and throw that away. And then on Sundays when I serve my church, that's meaningful and that matters. And when I find 20 minutes in the morning to pray that that is human flourishing and that's what matters. There has to be a way for us to bridge the gap between sacred, meaningful work and our nine-to-five job that doesn't seem to have an impact on the kingdom. That's a lie that your nine-to-five doesn't have an impact on the kingdom if you're not a pastor or a Christian counselor or um, something like that. So that's what we're going to unpack. And I hope that it actually encourages you now that I've crushed the dreams of all of your children. So first, we have to learn to hear from God well. When I think of how to hear from God in Scripture, I always go back to Samuel and Elijah, the prophet. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 4 through 5 says this, The lamp of God has not gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, Here I am. So Samuel is going to bed, He's been dedicated to do ministry his whole life, and he hasn't heard from God before because at this time, God was not speaking to people very often. First uh, Samuel says that uh, words from God were not common during this time. So Samuel, God is speaking to him, and he doesn't know whose voice it is, so he assumes that it's his mentor, the Elijah the prophet. And what he does to hear from God well is he goes to Elijah and he says, here I am, Elijah, what do you need? And Elijah goes, what? I didn't call you. Go back to bed. This is like uh, junior high camp when you're the camp counselor and the kid who sleepwalks is at the front of your bed, like just standing there. It's really creepy. <laughs> Camp's coming. It's coming. So this happens three times. And on the third time, when Samuel comes over to Elijah and says, why do you keep calling me? And Elijah keeps saying, why are you still here? Um, he says to him, oh, I know. Go lie down. The next time you hear it, say to the Lord, here I am, Lord. Here I am. What happens in this exchange is that God is trying to speak to Samuel. 
What Samuel doesn't do is he doesn't recognize right away, okay, this is God. And he also doesn't just handle it on his own. What he does is he goes to an outside source to get help with hearing from God. That's important, especially for our young people, to find seasoned saints or people who have been walking in Jesus for a long time who know the voice of God um, at least well enough to coach you through it. So if you are wanting to hear from God on your calling or your vocation, um, I think the number one thing I can encourage you to do is find someone that you trust that you can tell, hey, I feel like God was speaking to me. Can you confirm this? Can you search the scriptures with me for whether or not this lines up? So, so how to hear from God well is our first stop on this journey to vocation. And it matters especially for you, Caitlin, someone in high school, graduated high school, who's looking at their career, looking at the vast many options that you have for you. Um, and, and let me just give a little bit of education on labor. Um, until about 150 years ago, um, there wasn't like a bunch of options. 90% of people in the U.S. 150 years ago worked in agriculture. So this idea of like being berated at your high school open house um, about what you're going to do and what's the next step, they didn't do that 150 years ago. It was, oh, you excited to keep farming? Like that was the open house. Like, okay, that's great. Nice party. Um, the goats need to be milked. So go handle that. So these lofty ideals that we have about career and calling, what does God want me to do? And there's been other trades. There's always blacksmith and, you know, doctors and lawyers and, you know, physicians and things like that. That's always been a part of who we are in ministry callings, um, pastors, priests. That's always been a part. But the vast majority of our population has just been agriculture. It's not like little Billy on the farm with his overalls was praying, God, what do you want me to do when I grow up? He wasn't asking that question. And so the last piece of advice I'd give to you on hearing from God on your vocation and calling is don't just go to God to hear on your vocation and calling. And oftentimes we have these students who are just distraught. They're like, God, I don't know what you want me to do. Like, just tell me, please, I'll do it, please. And you probably know what I'm talking about. You probably have a niece or a nephew or, or someone in your life who's like that. And I just wonder if God is not speaking to them because he's afraid that that will be the last time they ask for him to speak to him. You know what I'm saying? If that is our sole focus, and maybe this is for me more because I work with young people so closely, if that's the only thing you need help with from God, I wonder if God's holding back until you get to a place where you realize you need God to speak into all areas of your life. That we need to hear from God on more than just our calling, the way we handle our business, the way we go about our lives day to day. Do you hear me? Are you still with me? Okay. Hearing from God's important. That was just a brief pit stop. Um, and here's um, just two other helpful thoughts. I am of the persuasion that if God wants to speak to me specifically on what he wants me to do, I believe he's a good enough speaker, and if I'm listening, he'll speak. So I'm not worried. Um, secondly, and, and like, for example, when Anna and I were interviewing for where we were going to land at a church, we wanted to hear from God specifically where we wanted to go. And he did. He spoke to us. He confirmed it through many ways. Here's what I do know. This is what I call sock theory. God has called you to wear socks in the morning, hypothetically. That is, that's something that's important to him. But he doesn't care if you wear striped socks, polka dot socks, short socks, long socks. He just wants you to, to fit in a certain type of thing. So what I know for, for sure is that God has called you to be a participant in his mission, the Great Commission, discipling all nations unto himself. And whether you do that as a dental hygienist or a lawyer, I don't think God really cares what you're doing as long as you're doing that. 
unless he speaks specifically to you. And I think he's a good enough communicator to get that to you if you're listening. So there should not be pressure over this. Like everyone just exhale. (sighs) Feels so good. You're not in sin because you're a lawyer, but God secretly wanted you to be a janitor or something. Like you're not, you're not missing it. Whatever you do, do it under the Lord. Um, the second idea, and this is something that my, my mentor taught me, and I, I could unpack this longer, but um, it's this idea of how we find our calling. So, Caitlin, I'm glad that you know that you want to be a teacher. Um, there is a chance that you change your major. I don't think you will. You seem fixed on that. But for those of us who are maybe in a career change, um, there's three ways that we find inspiration for our work and our calling in this kind of model. The first one is the burning bush. So this is Moses, and God is literally speaking to him audibly through a burning bush. Raise your hand if you've had that. Okay, cool. (laughs) Not many of us get that. Or in audible, thou shall be a teacher. But what we do have is not just a burning bush, we also have a burning heart. So what the burning heart is, is something that you're passionate about. And let me tell you my my story with that. My, My chief aim in life until I was a senior in high school was to make a lot of money. Now I'm a youth pastor. <laughs> a well-paid youth pastor to a very generous church. I feel super blessed. But my senior year, while I was taking all these classes and getting these certifications to sell insurance and to sell houses and had inroads into that industry, I was also leading a thriving Bible study on my school campus. And no matter what I did, I couldn't shake the fact that that was so much more fulfilling to me the role of a pastor than the role of an insurance salesman. So you have the burning bush moment, which almost none of us ever get, but then you have a burning heart, something that just sets you afire. And this is kind of those lofty ideals about just do what you're passionate about, but I think it's more than that. It's, it's what need in the world are you filling for God? The third step, and this is um, something we can all be a part of, um, is the burning house. When you see a house on fire, what do you do? You help. You go near it. You ask if anyone's in there. You call 911. You, you help. And so there are things that maybe you're not deeply passionate about, but you just hear the stat that says if every church in the United States had two people pick up a foster care um, person, that the foster care system would be obsolete. And yet the foster care system is still deeply in need. That's a burning house. Someone needs to change that. So go be a part of that. You hear what I'm saying? The burning bush moment's great, but none of us rarely ever get it. The burning heart is great, but sometimes you're kind of excited about a lot of things, but nothing is your thing. So find a burning house. Find an area of brokenness in our world that needs fixing and just go be a part of that. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's easier than we make it out to be. So That is how you hear from God. You look at that. The second um, core idea that's going to help us navigate calling is the idea that the mission of God is more important than your career. Let me say that again. The mission of God is more important than your career. Caitlin, I'm going to keep going back to you. You being a phenomenal teacher and winning teacher of the year, teacher of the decade, teacher of the century, is very important, but it's not more important than the mission of God. 
The Great Commission says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Additionally, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9, he says this, and this is something that will help us unpack the idea of some callings being more or less important, which I think is a myth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people, come on, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter is not only talking to the pastors and the priests, he's also talking to the fishermen and the blacksmith and the farmer. They are a royal priesthood too. And you're like, Bryce, what is a royal priesthood? Um, it simply means that you are a participant in the mission of God, that you are taking dead things and bringing them to life, whatever it is that you do. That's what that means. That you are a bridge builder between us and God. Another scripture that um, helps us navigate this is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3. You'll notice that there's a lot of scripture about this because it's a large part of our lives. Commit to the Lord whatever. Everybody say Whatever. And actually, in the Greek and the Hebrew, that word means um, whatever. (laughs) Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. And let me give you um, maybe a little helpful language for how that mission takes place today. For them, it was, there's this guy named Jesus. He came and blew up everything. He changed everything. And now we have to tell as many people about Jesus as we possibly can. Well, now we live in the United States 2,000 years later, and the majority of people have heard the gospel presented in at least a semi-cohesive fashion. So our job today in a post-Christian world, and when I say post-Christian, I mean we have kind of fallen away from the heyday of the church. The majority of people now no longer believe in Jesus, um, believe in the scripture as authority, or come to church regularly. What we are doing now, and this is the word that I want you to to take with you, is we are re-enchanting the world. We are re-enchanting the world with our vocation. And there's a few steps before we understand how our work as non-pastors impacts the re-enchantment of the world. I'll get there, but let me, let me unpack the re-enchantment idea. C.S. Lewis has this little-known essay. Um, it's not nearly as famous as most of his works, but it's called The Bicycle. And in his essay about the bicycle, C.S. Lewis unpacks how um, we view bicycles. When you are two, three, four years old, Um, You are unenchanted. So that's the the word he would call that. You are unenchanted. A bicycle has no meaning to you because you don't know how to ride one. You've never experienced it. You've never encountered it. You may not even have a sibling who's ever ridden a bicycle past you and made you just go, oh my gosh, that's amazing. So a bicycle is not very enchanting. You're not excited about a bicycle. And that was the way we were with Jesus before Jesus came. Now that Jesus came, we had this experience and encounter with Jesus. We now are riding the bicycle, so we are now not unenchanted, we are enchanted. But in the United States and many areas in the world, we are now kind of over it. Like the Jesus movement of the 70s no longer has any real traction in our lives. We have kind of forgotten about it, we've fallen away from the faith. Um, it has no relevancy to our daily lives, which is unfortunate. And now we are no longer enchanted, we are disenchanted. So you have the person who doesn't know how to ride a bike, and then you've got the five-year-old who's learning to ride the bike, and then you have the adult who is no longer fascinated. It just kind of sounds like work. You know, like, why would I put myself through so much rigorous movement? Like, I don't care about bikes anymore. 
My goal is that we would have in our churches triathlon people who, who love their bike again, who found purpose, who got a $4,000 road bike and are excited about it and are, have been re-enchanted to the bicycle. When I say bicycle, what I mean is our Christian faith. We're no longer witnessing and telling people about Jesus for the first time. We are representing Jesus to them in a way that makes them excited about it again. That's our mission. And it's different than the mission of the early church, but it's the same. The early church was trying to get it out to people, and now we're trying to reintroduce it to people. And your work has an impact on that. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit further. Um, Paul Gould says that reason, consciousness, and imagination lead us back to Christ. So Paul Gould, he's a cultural apologetist. Um, what that means is he um, helps us navigate why people are no longer in church. And he helps us bring them back. And, and his big critique of our church is that all we do to try to get people re-engage with God, and this is so important that you get this, our churches have these stick figure people with these giant heads. What I mean by that is our, our like, goal is to get them to accept in their mind a set of beliefs. And if we can get them to confess beliefs, then we will have them in our churches and we will win them. And so we do things like we debate the age of the earth and we debate whether or not there is a creation and we denounce the Big Bang and we denounce evolution and we, we fight and fight and fight so that we have better ideas than the world. But that is not the only way we can re-enchant the world. There's actually, I think, an easier route and that's the heart and aesthetic and beauty and I tell you what, when Corey Betts cuts those beautiful lines in our grass outside, that, honestly, I mean this, is a re-enchantment. That there was chaos, and now there's order, and it's beautiful. So you're starting to maybe see how your work can impact the kingdom. It's not just about getting people to get these ideas. And um, Here's what you probably hear a lot on, on how your work matters to Jesus. And it's a good idea, but it's not the only idea. Um, you've probably heard, and Pastor Brian said it in our huddle this morning, who is better qualified to reach teachers than a teacher, right? With Jesus, with the gospel. Who is better to reach the businessman or businesswoman than other businessmen and businesswomen? Who is better to reach the nurses than our nurses? And that is so true. When you model and walk with your life a real integrity and joy, that's great. But here's what we always say. Man, you just, even if you're a plumber, just be so happy that people just know there's something different about you and then they ask you about your faith and then they get converted and believe a set of beliefs. But now we have a bunch of really awkward plumbers walking around like this, <laughs> trying to fix pipes and they're like, I know you got leaking water, but have you heard about the living water? And they're just weird. Like, like you being super happy and more happy than everyone else is not the only way you can get people to ask you about your faith. I don't care too much if my plumber is smiling as much as I care about him fixing my leak. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and this is the, this is the um, it actually has a shadow side. It's silly, but there's something um, deeply wrong with it. That if I work in a factory, the only thing that my work matters for is me having proximity to my coworkers to hopefully convert them. That is not the only valuable thing about you working in a factory. The goods you produce that have an impact on the world that create order in God's kingdom, even if they don't have a Bible verse written on the beam of steel you're producing, it's still taking place in what the kingdom is doing. And I know that sounds weird, and there are some objections you probably have to that, 
but here's why you feel what you're feeling right now. Like I, I was telling Jeremiah and Mauricio, the cheesecake maker has an impact on the kingdom of God. Amen? And it's not because they hide a Bible verse in the box that says, if you don't want to go to hell, give your life to Jesus. It's because there's something about me eating a piece of cheesecake, the combination of the fat and the sugar and the glory of that moment that says, I care about you. God loves you. It's silly, but it's so theological and pure and true. You don't have to give an idea about God. And here's why. We, in the 1500s, separated vocation into two categories. And this, these are the reformers. So here's some church history for you. We said that there are sacred jobs, the priests, and there are secular jobs, everything else. Fast forward 500 years later, the Enlightenment thinkers, or not 500 years, um, 200 years later, the Enlightenment thinkers decided, okay, if we can split sacred and secular jobs, then why don't we split everything? And this is why God is no longer allowed in the schools the split of the sacred versus secular. And I would actually charge to you, yes, there is profane things, things that are not of God that are sin, but there is no separation of sacred versus secular. And that's why you feel like you have to put a Bible verse in the box of cheesecake. And this is why Christian art is really bad right now. Um, I hope you don't um, hate me for saying this, but Christian movies are not good. Even Christian music is just not, like, as enjoyable in many ways. And I love worship music. I love Chris Tomlin. Like, I, I do listen to that music, and it's encouraging. And, and the secular world music can change your heart away from God in a moment because of how powerful they are and the story that they tell. So there is caution. But, like, I feel the presence of God when I hear Bruce Springsteen. Right? Um... And it's not just because of a feeling or something like that, but your work has intrinsic value. And what you do is not just about the message, but there is something in our work that has something to do with the kingdom. Does anyone feel a little bit uncomfortable with that? Like, like he's getting the gospel out of our work. No, I'm not. Like, I hope you convert your coworkers. Please do so. Please tell the person with the leak about the living water. Like, that's great. Um... Okay, so here, here's a story to um, illustrate this. 2018, I am on 28th Street working out at Planet Fitness. And this, this moment changed my life forever. And this is where I started to get on this journey of the, the divide between sacred and secular and how harmful it is that we view the world that way. Um, I'm working out. It's like a Tuesday. I'm, I'm working out before work. And I'm, I'm finishing up on a treadmill and I'm kind of doing the last like half mile jog to do a cool down. Two treadmills over, um, larger guy, he's on the treadmill, he's working out with me and we do kind of that Midwestern. Hey, how's it going? Good, oh, good, cool, all right. The thing you do with strangers. And he's an image bearer and a person made in the image of God and deeply loved by God and I'm working out next to him. I finish up, he's just getting started. I go to shower 10 minutes later. I get out of the shower, I've got my bag. I'm getting ready to leave, and I see him surrounded by eight paramedics on his back. They've cut his shirt off, they're doing a final round of defib, had a heart attack, and died in Planet Fitness. 
And I'm in Bible college, and I'm a follower of Jesus, becoming a pastor. I'm just like, God, be with him. If there's any way to bring him back just right now, Jesus, in this moment, bring him back, Lord. Be with his family. Um, If he didn't know you, Lord, I just pray that you gave him an opportunity right there on that treadmill at the very end that he would know you. And I'm like, I'm closing my eyes, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I finally kind of finish praying, and I look up, and I realize that three treadmills down from him, there's a lady continuing her workout with her headphones in, looking at him on the floor. And not only that, but everyone in Planet Fitness, like 60 people, have not stopped their workout because of their busyness or their lack of care for the moment. And I'm just sitting there distraught. Like, this, this is a sacred moment. This ground is holy. Whether he's a believer or not, this person has passed into eternity. And you couldn't stop your workout to honor this moment. Like, this is sacred. And I remember talking with God later that night. Like, like it, it messed me up. I said, God, how could these people be so desensitized to the fact that you were present there as this person moved on to eternity? And I'll never forget, God said to me, Bryce, there is not a moment that I'm not completely engulfing the entirety of the universe. Every moment is sacred, just like that, Bryce. You just didn't notice it until then. Elizabeth Browning says that every bush is on fire. Few take off their sandals. Every moment is charged with God's spirit, his goodness, his mercy, his love. And there are these thin spaces, as James K. A. Smith says, that, that give us a better look at the, the presentness of God. And this is Sunday when we have lights and worship. This is that moment at Planet Fitness when someone passed into eternity. This is a funeral. This is a wedding. This is when you're standing next to a mountaintop. This is when you're looking at Corey's grass lines out in the yard. Like, there are moments that are thin spaces where we see God's present glory more. But how arrogant of us to think that anyone could keep God out of the schools. Everything is sacred. There is no such thing as a split between the sacred and the secular. Do you hear what I'm saying? God's presence completely engulfs and consumes the entirety of our existence, the universe. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. There is not a square inch. There is not a factory. There is not a receptionist desk where God's glory is not. There is nothing you can do with your hands except for sin that does not completely involve the presence and working of God's Spirit. Even if you don't proclaim the message of Jesus in that moment, even the person who's not a Christian who's making cheesecake is doing something to help us learn about God. And it's because of this. God designed the universe at the very beginning to teach us about himself. He designed everything, the mountain, the cheesecake, all of it. He designed it to teach us about his goodness, his glory. The the dynamic between a, a father and a child speaks to the way God sees us. He designed it that way. The mercy of your secular teacher not giving you a detention when you needed one speaks to God's mercy because he's the creator of all things and whether they connect it to Jesus or not, they're still learning about God. So that when they get to a moment where someone does clearly explain to them about Jesus, they know about God already. Right? The rocks and the earth, everything cries out and speaks to us about who God is. In the the theological world, we call it um, 
special revelation versus general revelation. Special revelation is me telling you that Jesus died for your sins. General revelation is you enjoying the creation that God has given us so that you know something about his heart. General revelation is someone in India who's never heard of Jesus but has a father who loves them and knows something about the father's heart inherently. And we need special revelation. But your work can do both. Your ability to fix that leaking pipe can teach you and us around us something about how God cares about order and he cares about you. Do you hear me? This is a big deal because we have bought into the lie that the only reason that you work, the only value that it has is if you can almost accidentally convert someone while you're doing what you're doing and everything else is irrelevant and doesn't matter. Your work deeply matters. Caitlin, you as a teacher in the classroom matter so much whether or not you have Bible verses on your desk. Your ability to love those students and to teach them teaches them about how God is a teacher and he teaches us to live. This is probably new thinking. This is something that has taken me a long time to get to, but I hope it, it is helpful for you. The third point is that all work holds intrinsic sacred value. All work. So here's, here's an example, a few, a few little examples just in the world, and then um, I want to give you Jesus' example in a book of, I think it's John. God designed us to require sleep. He designed us to require food. Um, he designed, he, his prayer for us in the Psalms is that we would have a city that is guarded, that we would have working systems, that we would have food, that we would have clothes. But he doesn't just give it. Even, even manna in the desert, in the wilderness, he doesn't just poof, give it. They have to go out and they have to get it. And it disappears so they can't store it up. They have to be reliant upon him. And the reason that that's important is that, um, think about this. When you receive a, a handwritten thank you card, you do appreciate the literal words on the thank you card. Like that matters. But if you're anything like me, what matters more to me about that thank you card is that um, someone took the time to sit down, to get the right size card in the right size envelope, to move a pen across the page, to fold it, even to lick the envelope. That matters to me. Um, put a postage stamp on it, put your address accurately on it, and then put it in the mail. The um, form can't be separated from the message. So you... Um, telling someone about Jesus while you fix a pipe can't be separated from the fact that you're fixing a pipe. Both matter. Um, let, me, let me illustrate it another way. God could have just made all of us from the dust of the earth, right? He's done it before. He's done it with others. Um, but what he chose to do is to create a calling in us to have a faithful marriage between a man and a woman, to have um, a city that has working transportation and order so that you can get from your home to the hospital. He created the architect and the builders of the hospital. He set it up so that the midwife and the receptionist all have a job. The janitor of the hospital has a job and a role to play in all that. And he, he allows us to all benefit and interact in the economy of God's grace through our work. God totally could have just poofed and made every single person out of the dust, but he doesn't. Here's Jesus' example in John chapter 6, verses 10 through 14. Jesus said, 
Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 people were there. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Then he had... Then they all had enough to eat, and he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. Um, it, it goes on, and essentially the people say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into all the world. So Jesus does not preach. He does not stand up on the hillside. He does not deliver a message about the imminent kingdom. He doesn't say a word to these people. What he does is he gathers, he organizes, he breaks and distributes, Those are all things you do with your hands and not your mouth. In whatever happened in that moment, I don't know how the miracle worked, but I know that you in your workplace gather, you organize, you break and distribute, you manipulate. Your work can lead people to say, wow, Jesus is so good, without preaching a single message. The work of distributing and multiplying was sacred. It was astonishing, just as much as any sermon Jesus ever gave. We are called to bring heaven to earth through our hands. We get to be a part of this. God has invited us into this. And Martin Luther has this beautiful idea that the the person doing the work is God in disguise, loving us through his common grace. And the Reformed thinkers have this phrase called common grace. There's special grace, which is Jesus dying for our sins, but there's common grace, God loving us through the way he designed the world. God allowing us to have a a view of a beautiful sunset, but also the tour guide driving us to the beautiful view of the sunset. Your work matters. And I hope this is a new idea to you, and I hope it sticks, and I hope Landon, as you're doing nursing, that you see the glory of God in your practice just as much as what you tell them as they leave. God bless you. I hope all of you in your work see the intrinsic value of bringing the kingdom to earth. And our seniors, our graduates, I hope that you see intrinsic value in what you're doing. It matters. Do it under the Lord. Do it to the best of your ability. I'm going to begin closing now. Pastor Eric, if you would come forward. even in the life of Jesus, he came not as a philosopher. He didn't come as a diplomat or a general. He came as a carpenter. God thought that that mattered too. And that's what he chose to do. My whole goal this morning is to help you understand how to hear from God. To help you understand that the mission of God matters more than your specific career. And to help you see that there is no such thing as sacred versus secular. It's all sacred. Every moment is completely full and charged with the presence of God. And whether you're a receptionist or a pastor, your role in this deeply matters. I do hope you convert people and their beliefs and get them to church because of the way or what you say to them as you work alongside them. But more than that, I want you to know that as you bring chaos to order in your workplace, as you handle complaints and customer service, as you lay foundations for buildings, I want you to know that it's speaking to the goodness of God. And even if it takes years for someone to actually present the gospel to that 
person, what you do with your hands is helping. It's planting a seed. And if you're not working right now, if your primary calling is to be a mom or a dad, just know that that has a deep, profound impact on the way your children will receive the gospel later. The way you cut the crust off their sandwich, the way you fix and bandage their wounds, it speaks. Everything speaks to the goodness and the glory of God if we do it well and we do it unto him. You get to be part of this. And I hope that as you go back to the workplace tomorrow morning, whether you start at nine or you have a midnight shift, whether you're at a gas station or a church, I hope that you have a fresh um, excitement to what you get to do, the way that you get to take what's in front of you and do it under the glory of God. It all matters. And as you do good in your workplace, it is God loving the recipient of your service. There is not a vocation that is not, apart from sin, that is not glorifying to God. You do not have a less than calling. You do not have a less important calling. And you are not just there to provide financially for your family so that you can serve our church in what really matters, the real stuff. What you are doing matters. I just want to pray just a charge of a prayer of blessing over you this morning as you go back to your workplace. I do hope people get converted on the, in the spot, but more than that, I hope that they feel that there's a creator of this universe that is good because of what you do. Jesus, I pray for the employee right now that feels or felt that what they did didn't matter, that their calling was irrelevant or insignificant. Lord, I pray that they understand the priesthood of all believers, that they are acting on your behalf as they minister. And Lord, I do pray that as our nurses minister to the people that they're working with, they would also minister to their co-workers. Lord, I pray that they would not ignore the person right in front of them needing their care. Lord, I pray for the person working in lawn and maintenance care, Lord, that they would know that seriously as they trim and they make a space beautiful, that they are doing it unto your glory. Lord, I pray for those working in the food service industry, that they would know that as they create food that you designed for us to require and to enjoy, that they are doing something unto the glory of God that speaks to your goodness to us. Jesus, I do pray for our pastors and our ministers that we would know that the way we treat each other matters, the way we treat our congregation matters. Lord, I do pray that anyone in this room feeling called to ministry would know that it is a high calling, that it requires much. But Lord, may we never forget that there is a cost to all callings, that loving all people matters. The welder just as much as the receptionist. Jesus, as they go back in the workplace Monday, I pray that they would know that what they're doing with their head, their heart, and their hands is sacred work. Lord, I pray that we would never walk around burning bushes with our sandals on. Lord, may we be a people who recognize the presence of your spirit in our workplace, Lord. In every moment, would we know that you are there, that you are with us as we toil, that you see us, that you love us, and that what we do with our hands matters. Lord, we pray for the senior class as they go out into the world. 
whether it's college or trades or just right into the workplace, Lord, I pray that they would carry this with them, that they would carry your presence with them, that all would know that they love you and serve you. Jesus, thank you for this morning. I just pray that even one person would be encouraged that what they do matters, that there would be meaning, fulfillment, and purpose from what we do. Lord, I pray this over our congregation in Jesus' name. Amen.